if there's one word that I think would be more hurtful to us than anything, one word that would really sting if people used it of us, it's this word. It's the word hypocrite. None of us would like to hear that if someone says to us, I think you're a hypocrite. You know that's a word that originally comes out of the theater? It described an actor, someone who played a part, and in the early stage they often had a physical mask that they held up in front of their face, and if they played two or three parts, they did two or three masks, and they went from one to the other. And then at the end of the play, they took them off and they went home. And they were somebody else. Describe someone whose life is not authentic. They see one thing, but they really live another. Hypocrites are word that stings. This morning in our study as we continue in 1 John, John wants us to meet three hypocrites. Three people who say one thing but really do another. They know all the right words for church. They know all the right moves. They got all the right phrases. They've got evangelical church language down to a T. They know just when to raise their hands and when to clap and when to be quiet and when to do this, when to do that. But you know what? They are phonies. This morning I'd like you to meet three hypocrites. They're all introduced in the text by exactly the same phrase. It's the man who says, the man who says. And we'll turn this morning to these hypocritical personalities and meet them. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do, or we have someone that appears, please use them. Turn to First John and chapter 2 with me. If you use our notes, there's a mistake right at the top. It says chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, it's actually chapter 2. First John chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 4. <coughs> and we'll meet the first hypocrite. I call this one adoration without action. You got that? Adoration without action. Verse 4. Look along with me. The man who says, I know him, meaning God, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys God's word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know. Remember that's a phrase that will resonate and echo through First John. This is how we know that we are in him. You remember that First John is set against the a background of what we've called, what's the word begins with a G? Gnosticism, that's it. It comes from the Greek of Gnosis. It means knowledge. The Gnostics were intellectual. They were an acclaimed to some spiritual nirvana through the knowledge that they gained. And so, in a way that you really would describe it as being kind of like in your face, John uses the word knowledge in one form or another 40 times in the 105 verses in 1 John. That means every two and a half verses he's talking in somewhere about the word knowledge. And remember that Gnosticism was what we called dualistic. That meant it divided and separated the world into two parts. There was a spiritual world, and then there was a physical world. The spiritual was good and pure and holy, like God, what we're striving for. On the other hand, there was what was physical, the material aspects of our words, of our world, which were they regarded as fallen and sinful. And this dualistic dichotomy, dichotomy created for them and can for us a false understanding of what it means to know God. John will simply not allow us to follow a false trail into some mystical paradise of knowing God. You know what he says? Actions speak louder than words. None of us wants to be hypocrite. We want our faith in God to be real. 
We want our lives to be authentic. We want to live with credibility. And the way that we stand as authentic and credible Christians before ourselves and before people is to make sure that with simplicity and consistency that the adoration we express in our faith we shared in worship this morning, lovely song, I fall at your feet, that these words are turned into actions and steps of faith. You see, words of devotion and worship, no matter how intense they are, need to be turned into steps and actions of obedience. Worship in which we seek to understand the character of God demands a response, some response. Perhaps the greatest sin we can commit in worship is to do nothing and to remain unchanged. And John introduces us to this first hypocrite, the person who says, Oh, I just love God. Who adores God. Who says that he worships God, but does not live out the detailed instructions of God's word in his will in their lives. I realize that um, I'm getting older. I turn 67 next week. So my grandchildren, one of my little grandsons said to me one day, Grandpa, you're not getting old. You're getting old, old. That was encouraging. I have a sense that words like obedience and discipline are not very popular today in our culture. But they're intricately woven into the tapestry of the Christian life. And if you remove words like obedience and discipline, discipleship, the tapestry of Christianity simply unravels. There's not enough thread to hold it together. The heartbeat of the Christian life is to be found in loving God. But loving God is expressed not just in adoration, but in action and obedience. Jesus says to us in John 14, 15, He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. When we're prompted in even the smallest ways to love God, we're free from thoughts of duty, of obligation. And we have, to re- we have to begin to respond to the law which is written on our heart. When people say, can you do this or do that as a Christian? They're asking means that they have very little concept of what it is to love God. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. But there's another beat to this spiritual rhythm, which is found a chapter later in John 15, verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You see, these two truths go together like the heads and tails of the same coin. Love gives birth to obedience, and then in his turn, obedience stimulates a greater love, which gives birth to obedience. And so you see, love and obedience keep feeding one another. Jesus teaches the same truth in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? I will say to them, frankly, I never knew you. I didn't know you. You were doing all these things in my name, but I didn't know you. Where do we start? I don't think obedience is a vague general idea. Rather, it's a specific issue. One decision at a time, one step after another. One issue after another, we decide again and again, what does God say and what will I do?
For instance, you may have said, I love Jesus. And I would ask you to think this morning that you need to act out the words of confession in the act of baptism. That's where you declare Jesus is Lord. I love Jesus. And Jesus is Lord. That, for some of you, may be the next step that you have to take. Or maybe there's something else right now in your mind and your heart that you've been reading and studying and God has impressed upon you. And you know, you just know, you really need to do that. You say you love God. I say to you this morning, what is the next step that God is pressing upon you that you have to take? Remember, being spiritual is not some mystical flight from reality. Rather, it is acting the daily character of God out in our lives. You chose to come here this morning because you genuinely love God and want to worship Him. And we began to worship Him this morning. I fall at your feet. But actions speak louder than words. And let me ask you for a moment, what specific action is loving God calling on you and asking you to take this morning? I'd like to pause for a minute. I invite you to bow your head. Just close your eyes and bow your head with a minute, and, with a minute with me in prayer and think, what is that in your life? Not the person next to you, not your spouse. What is that in your life right now? Take a moment to do that. Father, we are people who say we love you and we worship you. We want to know you. What are you asking us to do, each person individually, specifically, to turn this adoration that we genuinely have for you into a step of action, a step of obedience? Each one of us, Father, will know what that is. And when we finish the service about quarter to eleven, may we take whatever steps we need to take to start that. In your name we pray. Amen. Meet hypocrite number two, verse six, first John chapter two. The man who says to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new command, but an old command, which you've heard from the beginning. <coughs> this old command is the message that you've heard. John knows very well that he's not giving them some new revelation. But it's really an old word. It's the original word. It's what they always know. Exactly what Jesus told them in the upper room in the shadow of Calvary. Remember he said to them, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. You see, this hypocrite is the person who can profess with great passion, Oh, how I just love Jesus. But his life has not changed in any radical way. Somehow the intervention of grace in their lives does not seem to have made much of a difference. And John puts a moral, ethical challenge right in front of us. And frankly, we can't sidestep our way around it. It's very simple. If you say that you're a believer, you believe in Jesus, John says then, you know what? Live like one. I've often said to you, I don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. But I expect Christians to live like Christians. You see, the goal of the Christian life is not information. 
You can come to church and you can buy books and you can read books. <coughs> you can listen to tapes and you can get CDs. You can get on your iPod. You can get all kinds of stuff. You can get all kinds of information. And in a tragic irony, not be changed one bit. The whole thrust and the goal of the Christian life is not information. It is imitation. It is transformation. What does it mean to walk in the steps of Jesus? At Romans chapter 8, a couple of verses in it are terribly abused. And people do all kinds of dumb things with this. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things... God works for the good for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those, God whom, for those whom God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed, to be shaped, to be fashioned into the likeness of His Son. There's at least two truths in those verses which are often overlooked, and they're simply this. It does not say, Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good. It doesn't say that. What it says is that all things work together. That's one of my favorite Greek words. It's the word synergy. All things synergize for good. It does not all say that all things are good. Children die in accidents and all kinds of stuff. That is not good. Hurricanes in the last couple of weeks have destroyed tornadoes have destroyed homes. That's not good. Money and food in an enormous way goes to armies. That's not good. Hundreds of thousands of people in our world starve and some starve to death. That's not good. And we must not label these human sufferings as good. But Paul says some things work together for good, which cannot be seen or understood in their separateness. There's a a great statement at the end of the story of of Joseph and the find in the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph? Guy's got this really neat tailor, he's got this really neat suit. Brothers can't stand them. Um, they're going to dump them in a well, leave them to die, and eventually they sell them into slavery. <clears throat> and um, he gets sold into slavery. And then in Potiphar's house, he ends up, because he won't sleep with Potiphar's wife, he ends up going and being sent into prison because he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to offend God. Um, you remember that? He ends up actually 13 years in prison because of that. In prison, out of his time in prison, remember, he rises to power. And all of that works together for good in Israel. And his brothers come to him begging for food. Remember the end of the story? And it's in a time of famine. And they recognize Joseph. And they realize that this is the brother that they sold into slavery. And he is now the one in power. He is the president of the wheat board. He is the food. And he is the power. And they say to each other, Oh, look who that is. It's Joseph. Joseph remembers and recognizes who they are. You know what Joseph says to them? What you meant as evil, God used for good. Great line. What you meant as evil, God used for good. So you need to understand in Romans 8.28, it does not say things are good. It says things work together for good in our lives. And secondly, it, they move towards the end goal. Here's a word some of you learned a couple of weeks ago. The word was teleology. And it means that our lives will be shaped and transformed into the likeness of Jesus, and that's the end goal. So we need to ask sometimes as we go through difficult circumstances, how does this event move me towards that goal? How does it shape me into that goal? You see, words are not enough. Actions speak louder than words, and the actions of our lives need to echo and resonate and reflect the life of Jesus. Here's hypocrite number three. 
It's what we might call this morning um, revelation without compassion. Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light. Now this is one of these. The man who says again. He claims I'm in the light. I'm walking in the light of God, folks. But hates his brother. Is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother. Not just enough to love God. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. And there's nothing in him to make him stumble. Gnosticism, you remember, had some key words. One of the words was knowledge. Obviously. Here we have another key word out of Gnosticism. The word is light. The Gnostics talked about the light that was to illumine our lives. The the inner light was to help us see and dispel this inner darkness. And John has absolutely no hesitation in using this Gnostic buzzword and getting as much mileage as he can out of it for the sake of the gospel. Christians are people of revelation. They're people who are called to walk in the light of God's love and God's truth. And Jesus says to us that light and darkness are not external. They're internal. The the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Ever thought about that? See, light and darkness is not out there. Light and darkness is in here. If the eye, if the light within you then is darkness, how great is that darkness? Of course we need light. We need inner illumination. But the light comes from Christ. Remember, it was John's gospel that said, Jesus was the light of the world. And if you've that inner light shining in your lives, it won't lead you some, into some mystical journey away from people. Rather, it will lead you towards your fellow Christians with whom you live and walk and love. John brings this truth before us, we'll see, again and again. Revelation, the insight of walking in the light of God, demands compassion. So fellowship, being together in Christ, is not some big mystical idea that exists only in the realm of the mystical and spiritual. You know, fellowship is real people. It is flesh and blood and struggles and weakness and tears and mistakes and hurts and forgiveness. It is all of these kinds of things and much more. The existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, you know what he said? He said, hell is other people. Hell is other people. To him, all of the life, all of life with all of its questions and puzzles was at least bearable until people came along. I've been thinking in the last little while as we work through this about the range of emotions and responses in us that perhaps lie between hate and active love. Let me give you five of them. At one end of the spectrum, there can be strong emotion of hate. I don't think any of us get up in the morning with a strategy formed in our mind that we're going to go out and hate someone. But how do we hate? Sin seldom comes as a frontal attack. It usually comes in a disguise. The next stage up from hate is what we'll call apathy. We don't hate. But you know what? We just don't feel anything towards people. Who cares? Whatever happens to them is just too bad. Remember the story of what we call the Good Samaritan? And there was people in there who didn't hate. They just crossed over and walked by on the other side of the street. Who cares? I'll be honest. I struggle at times. I struggle a lot. Um, 
with what do you do in the streets with people asking for money? Um, I live in Victoria, as you know, and we went into Tim Hortons the other day with my wife. And there's a guy sitting in the, um, in the rain, because it's Victoria. Um, just sitting in the rain outside Tim Hortons with a little bowl saying, can you give me some money? And it, it comes so easily to my mind. I just say, no. Walked in, had her coffee. I don't always know what to do with that. I don't know if you do. But I don't always know what to do with that. That's walking by on the other side of the street. Third stage up. It's just, you know, we like people. It's kind of like what I'd call a first date. We just like people. It's fun to be with some people. We enjoy their company. And we wouldn't want to live in their house, and we don't want to be in their lives all the time. But we just like them. That's the stage of, you know, we go back and forth, we give compliments, we affirm, we praise, it's fine and good. Genuine, but that's frankly as far as it goes. We just like people. And then the next stage up is what we call sympathy. It's when we feel the pain and the struggle that someone is going through. We can feel burdens along with them. We can stand at a graveside with them. We hear someone's in hospital. We stop by the house. We give them a hug. We, we very genuinely want to walk alongside them in a time of stress. But then there's a time for us to leave and we go home. We go back to our lives. And by large, we're kind of unchanged by, by that. But there's sympathy. We genuinely give our feelings of understanding and sympathy. But that's it. The fifth level is one of what we'll call active love, which is born out of compassion. You know, that's one of the strongest words that was ever used to describe the emotional life of Jesus. Compassion. Jesus saw people in great need, and his eyes and his heart were filled with compassion for them. It means he was moved in his guts to feel for them. He looked over a city. Jerusalem, and he felt compassion for it. It was compassion that moved Jesus to take the kind of action that have involved him in the lives of other people. Compassion gives birth to love. Not just in feeling a word, but in love and action. One of his little books, Francis Schaeffer, who was a teacher and a prophet of a previous generation. Francis Schaeffer wrote, If I truly love a person, if I truly love a person, I will desire for them to become all that they can be on the basis of the finished work of Christ. You got that? If I truly love a person, think of someone you can bring to mind that fits that definition for you. Then Schaefer says, I will desire for them to become all that they can be on the basis of the finished work of Christ. So what would it mean to look at someone Our starting point for them is the work of the cross. And then our act of love towards them is to become all that they can become. And we're willing to do what is is whatever in our power to realize that. Compassion is the call of love that's willing to become involved in another person's life. Their joy and pain and laughter and tears so that they will know that whatever they're walking through, they'll know that they're not alone. Pastor Cindy this morning prayed that we would have that as a church and as individuals. 
towards some of the young people in Seattle and the Indian community over in Vancouver Island where some people will go this summer to work. She prayed that for um, Pastor Johnny and a team who will go this summer with ICC to work with those who are disabled. She prayed for that for those who will go with the EMIS team. Um, we're going to pray for them. I think it's next Sunday morning. And what they go with is compassion. They want to see people become all that they can become. On the basis of the finished work of Jesus. And when we step into the deep waters of compassion with someone, so that our actions and involvement changes their lives, we are not left unchanged in the process. On the contrary, we are changed in some part of our being also. When compassion enters our heart, its embrace profoundly changes us. We'll never be the same again. You see, walking in the light of the love of God gives birth to compassion, which leads to active love. We can't do that for maybe everyone. Where do we start? I think as a man, remember after a couple of sunny mornings in our previous church, somebody said to me, with whatever I was talking about, Tom, I wish you wouldn't think as a man. i got to tell you this morning, I don't have any other choice. You got it? I am a man. And I'm a man who's married. And some of you are not, and I understand that with respect this morning. But can you let me have my starting place? I'm a man. And I'm a man who's married. And so I live and speak out of that. Imagine in every marriage, if we applied the deep endeavor of sacrificial love towards our spouse, and as men, towards our wives. What would marriages be like? If husbands lived up to the words of their marriage vows, to love and honor and cherish. And I, I really love the words of the old Anglican wedding service. With my body, I be worship. That's how the Apostle Paul put it. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is a call to men who are married to nothing less than the activity of sacrificial love in the most intimate place there is to practice our faith, which is our marriages. And if you're not married this morning, I understand that. But maybe God has given you one other person to whom your actions need to match your words and confession of faith. So we began by saying the word hypocrite comes out of the theater. You recall maybe a familiar passage from William Shakespeare. All the world is a stage. And all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and they have their entrances. Is that all each day is? Is that all relationships are? Is that all the church is, a stage in which all of the world, all of the people are merely players? Places and people we, where, very frankly, we can learn to say the right lines, and like good actors, learn to listen for the right cues, and, and say our carefully rehearsed lines to each other. We give our compliments, 
I learned a long time ago that when you come into church and you, um, people ask or you see people, how are you doing fine? How are you doing fine? They could be dying inside. But you know what? We'll say fine. And we have our carefully rehearsed lines to each other. We give our compliments. And then at the end of the day, the day we walk off the stage and we wash off our makeup and we become ourselves for those few hours before we go to God, before we, we go to bed. Is that all church is? Authentic living in the light of God will not let us, be, let us become actors before God or one another. You know, Jesus said he came to love. And words were not enough. He was acted out on the cross and he did not become an actor who simply played the part. The blood was not fake blood that was washed off at the end of the day. The tears for the words were not fake tears that drew it quickly dry when the scene was over. The resurrection was not a scene for an actor who had been killed off during the day, gets up, shakes the dust off when that day's acting is over and goes back for his supper. It was a real death that it was called for, that demanded nothing less, nothing less than real resurrection. And so, where we started, none of us, none of us, want to be called hypocrites. We don't want to live like hypocrites. Because authentic worship calls for response. Words of adoration are not enough. Authentic confession calls for life change. Actions speak louder than words. An authentic illumination, saying that we know and we walk in the light of God, calls for compassion. Actors need not bother to apply. And I think every one of us right now knows some place in our lives where we need to take action, we need to change. Time for words gets to be over. Nothing more needs to be said. We simply need to go and get on with it. Because actions speak louder than words. Here's an old, old hymn. I haven't heard this in church for a long time. But here's an old, old hymn. All to Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. Stand.